So you can translate something that's intermixed allows and denies into something that is only allows. But when you do that, you end up splitting your networks. They all have rule limits, but if you're gonna go expand rules, then you're gonna hit those limits even sooner. Welcome to Altitude, the unsung heroes of cloud transformation, a podcast by Aviatrix. Today, more and more enterprises are moving their business up to the cloud as the race to innovate continues. In this multi-cloud world, IT leaders and teams find themselves behind the wheel where they are confronted with both new challenges and new opportunities. On Altitude, we explore the voices and stories of the people who are overcoming these challenges every day to drive their business to the next level. Be sure to subscribe on your preferred listening app and stay tuned for this episode. Hello and welcome everyone to another episode of Altitude. Of course, I'm Woody Woodworth, your host. So folks, we have a really cool guest on the show today, someone I admire greatly and is a delight to have on the show, Susan Henricks, who is the Chief Scientist at Aviatrix. So Susan, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So obviously top of mind, the first question I have to ask is, what a cool title, Chief Scientist. What does that mean? What do you do at Aviatrix to earn such an amazing title? Yeah, what does that mean? Um, I do a lot of um, stuff here and there, uh, mostly in the security space. I've been doing a lot of design and some of the implementation work for distributed cloud firewall. I also get my hands into other aspects of things and kind of the routing and in uh, some of the policy-based traffic engineering. And um, you know, basically I just, I stick my nose in bits that look interesting. Aviatrix has been a great company to work for in that regard because there are many interesting things floating around. Oh, that's great. I think a good scientist always sticks her nose in stuff, right? I mean, insofar as the whole idea is to go through the scientific process, you have a hypothesis that something may or may not work. And then you go through that process of iterating and experimenting. There will be some failures, but also some wonderful successes, right? So I think that approach to engineering and development all up is really cool, <laughs> right? Without struggle, without failure, as the whole Thomas Edison zeitgeist teaches us, you know, we don't get uh, success. Right. So yep. yeah, if you fail, try, try again. And then through that comes the, the wonder of success. So Distributed Cloud Firewall is your recent big project. But you have a, a long and, and rich history of working in innovative engineering spaces, right? You were at Yahoo for, what, uh, I don't know, 10 years? You tell me. How long were you there? I was there six or seven years, yeah. That, that six was or seven was years. Immediately previous to Aviatrix, yeah. Yeah. And so what was that culture like? Was it also very much innovative and, hey, you know, go in, be scientific, test your ideas, break stuff, see what works? Was that a similar approach? Yeah, uh, yeah. Our group, we were on the edge uh, group, which kind of different edge than what we see with Aviatrix. This was on the edge of coming into the Yahoo network. So we were responsible for you know terminating traffic, scrubbing traffic as it comes into the Yahoo environment, make sure that new appropriate things don't leave. So kind of a, a firewalling aspect, but more of a very web-oriented and very single company-oriented. So we were there using an open-source software, uh, Apache Traffic Server, which we're also using here in our distributed cloud firewall. So different, but some commonalities as well. And in our environment there, too, we were able to build up a group within uh, um, our little corner of Yahoo that was kind of, we went out there and we found problems. You know, if there was a problem we ran into, we would kind of try to take it on, try to help folks out, and also working with the open source community. 
you know, learning things from our open source uh, colleagues in different companies and seeing what kind of issues they're having, seeing if that applies to us, and also for the issues that we're having, finding solutions and then sharing them with the broader community. Do you find a similar taste for open source and experience set with open source technology here at Aviatrix as you, as you did at Yahoo? Is there a common thread? Any internet company these days is certainly going to be using a lot of open source. Yeah. But yes, uh, I think a lot of companies maybe will be users, consumers of open source, and maybe not contribute back so much because that takes time and energy and possibly leaking some secret sauce. We do, though, within Aviatrix, we, we are consumers of open source technology. But we also have folks who are contributing back. So as I mentioned, we're still using the Apache Traffic Server project, and we are contributing. I'm still on the security board for that project and contributing back fixes and helping things figure, help folks figure out things. We also have some folks who are active on the Linux kernel project. So we're able to get some early insights on what's coming into the kernel by virtue of having people contributing to the kernel. So it's you know you get some rights with that cost of engaging. That's awesome. I remember when I was at Microsoft, it was really cool to see the transition between the Balmer era where open source was literally a four-letter word, if you could squeeze it into a four-letter word. or That was definitely the political climate at the time. And then, of course, when Satya came in, slowly but surely transformed Microsoft to a major open source contributor. And then open source wasn't at all a four-letter word. In fact, it was something that was meant to be and should be embraced. Mm -hmm. And you know, there are some bodies in the road on the way. There are some people that were old guard people that struggled with that transition. But by and large, everyone got on board pretty quickly. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's a trade-off. Uh, but for certainly for infrastructure kind of things, I think the benefits of having multiple organizations feeding information in is going to result in a stabler base than if you just go it along with your own preparatory knowledge. Yeah, I agree. I think most people would agree, especially too on the security side, that the mm -hmm. open source approach is the superior way to do it. I know I'm probably going to get a hundred comments or, or more uh, to the contrary, because it's a pretty fiery topic. You know, what's the best way to develop security products in closed systems or open systems? But I was awfully glad when I came to Aviatrix to see that, especially on the security side, we were big into open source and, and the power uh, and just the big user base for testing, right, and mm -hmm. um, stability that, that that brings. So I assume then that BCF, Distributed Cloud Firewall, probably uses a good deal of open source, but in, you know, uh, a special way that we've adapted it for our product. Is that right? Yeah. So as I mentioned, uh, at the, the application layer, we're using Traffic Server. We are using some eBPF modules, and so that is kind of our, our sauce, our kernel-level logic. Oh, and we're using Sericata as well. So leveraging the bits that are out there and have been established and have been war tested and so, you know, something that we couldn't in, in this time scale, you know, get anything that would be as resilient. And then we are pulling it together with our own secret sauce of policy and expression, you know, expressing the policy and then figuring out how to take it down to our enforcement points. So a lot of our enforcement points are open source. And I think our secret sauce is uh, presenting that policy layer and, and managing that transition. Okay, just to help our listeners and myself, tell me why eBPF is important. I mean, I think I know enough about eBPF to be dangerous, <laughs> uh, so I don't, I don't want to start getting into it. I'm sure I'll screw it up. Why is that good to have for us as a security product? Right, yeah, so uh, eBPF is extended 
Berkeley packet filter. I think the E is extended. And uh, what it is, is the ability to take kind of C-like code and run it through an analyzer that makes sure that it will terminate and then be able to run that in kernel space. And so that allows you to do some, some analysis on traffic, on network traffic. That's how we're using it. Very low in the stack. So if you are dropping a lot of traffic, you're dropping it very low in the stack without wasting a lot of effort. You can have very reasonably long policy lists and be able to efficiently evaluate them by having these tight loops that are in our BPF module that's running in the kernel. You could do something similar. So this, we're using this basically for doing our layer three, four filtering. You could do something similar in uh, IP tables, right? That would be the classical way of implementing a firewall within a Linux code base. And it would be similar, you could express the same kind of policy in, in IP tables. But IP tables does a whole lot more. It has a whole lot more expressibility, a whole lot more things that beyond strict layer three, four filtering. So everything has a cost, right? So if you have this very expressive format that you do in IP tables, your cost of evaluating a relatively long rule set is a lot higher. So by concentrating on what we need and implementing it in BPF, we're able to implement something that has a much lower overhead so we can express a much larger policy efficiently. And we can protect our system if someone is trying to, you know, if we have a lot of traffic coming at a particular enforcement point, I guess we'll be done very efficiently. So with eBPF, and I may have said eBF earlier, which is, uh, you know, I told you I was uh, just smart enough to be dangerous at that. So for the listeners, eBPF. With eBPF running a kernel space, are there also inherent advantages to just the security of the product itself from a malware or, or rootkit hacking perspective insofar as if it's running as a user process, it might be easier to, to control or manipulate? So I, I totally get the CPU savings and performance savings you get by moving lower in the stack. That makes complete sense. But mm -hmm. am I barking up the wrong tree? Is it good to have, you know, stuff folded into the kernel because it's just more robust from a security perspective or our user process is pretty, pretty darn secure and open source these days? Well, if you have some malware running on your gateway, there are user space processes that are doing the care and feeding of these VPF processes. So yeah. I, I think that you would still, and maybe it's like one more step to, to get to that point. It's still concerning, right? Linux these days gives you the ability to have your user processes not run as root to do these things. You generally, you can run as least privilege, you get things set up and then you drop privilege. So even if someone's able to insert malware to inject code into your process, if your process is running as unprivileged user, there are still limits to what they can do. Right. So I guess that's the whole Debian Ubuntu pseudo mm -hmm. approach, right? But everyone by default isn't root. All processes by default aren't root. And then you need to elevate that process. Right. Or generally you start elevated and you, and you drop. Right. Elevate it. Almost like just-in-time access for zero trust, you know, but in, in, a, in a much more software-centric model. Right. That's really cool. So I've always admired companies that can make very complicated products extremely simple and easy to use. And I know me working for Aviatrix, this feels just like blatant marketing fanboy stuff, but I, I try on the show really hard to divorce my job role at Aviatrix and what I do here on the podcast is just an industry thinker. So I, I say this hopefully from a genuous neutral place. I feel that DCF is probably under the hood very complicated because of what it does at scale. 
and the way that it simplifies that scale from a policy model to the end user where they just are presented with a very finite, easy set of controls, but under the hood, you know, there's a lot going on. And from a design perspective, that is probably difficult to do. And thus, I do admire that that kind of product and the energy and, and thought that goes into putting something like that out. I'm sure DCF was probably not a simple product to design and engineer. Is that an understatement? <laughs> oh, we've been working on it for a while, but uh, yeah. yeah, you know, that, that kind of um, presenting a global policy or global intent, that, that was the whole driving force for what we were trying to do. Because, you know, there's a lot of firewall, you know, the traditional firewall mode is that you have a firewall and you're configuring the firewall and then you have another firewall and you configure that firewall where we wanted to just have our, our, our customers concentrate on policy, right? What is the intent? What is the thing that you're trying to express? You express that. And then thanks to cloud interfaces and our footprint within the customer's deployment, we kind of know where everything is and we know we can push the appropriate enforcing rules to the places that need to enforce the policy. So, you know, DCF is this open source-based distributed platform. It uses some really cool, robust open source capabilities that are hardened and specialized through our secret sauce, eBPF being one of them, Suricata, Apache traffic server. If I was a naysayer or a contrarian, I could say, well, listen, I'll just do this myself. It's cool that Aviatrix gives me this syntactic sugar and this layer of user experience on top of it and that there's value there. But ultimately, if it's all open source, I could just go install a bunch of PFSense across my cloud, mm -hmm. then I could leverage the same thing, maybe at a fraction of, of the price. Why don't we see more of the DIY approach being successful? Why hasn't it uh, worked? Yeah, you could certainly roll your own and, and folks do. And, you know, a lot of folks will deploy IP tables rules. It's pretty standard or, or PFSense, yeah. depending on your distribution. If you're doing individual IP tables rules, thinking about where all your gateway, where all your egress, all your enforcement points are, if you have a, a, a very large footprint and all, and you're going to be successful, you're going to have to think about some sort of template or model for that. You want to be able to adapt as things change, as machines come in and out of your environment, you need to update them. And having a fast turnaround time and having something accurate, that's the other thing, right? Fast so the new things come in, but also fast so the old things get pulled out, right? You don't want to leave broad holes. That's the other thing. You could over-broaden your firewall rules, and then you would always be able to have things, as you spin them up, go out. But then, you know, if your malware kind of is able to go in and spin up a VM or, or hijack a VM that hasn't been ready for market yet, you've kind of opened yourself up. So, uh, I mean, just managing your rules is hard enough. But doing the management and the deployment and the cross-verification and making sure it works with your address translation, having multiple enforcement points. Um, I mean, just managing all of that, it's hard enough to manage the rules, uh, but having a sufficient staff to do the deployment, do the analysis, do the distribution, uh, it's a lot. I see. For something as essential as security, you probably don't want to cheap out on your security. Makes sense. So kind of the OpenStack dilemma, right? Where you have a platform that's every bit as capable as Another converged infrastructure platform, we'll just use VMware as the easy example. Mm -hmm. So initially, OpenStack looked super promising, um, and a lot of people were really hell-bent for leather on, on trying it out and getting it up and running. But I think as enterprises got involved with it, they realized that in its existing form, 
an ecosystem, it required a team of dedicated specialists. Mm -hmm. And that the cost of OpenStack plus the dedicated team of specialists that were constantly caring and feeding for this ecosystem, that maybe it was a wash. And I'm not saying that OpenStack was a failure. I'm just saying that enterprise scale businesses that decided to commit to it also had to commit to, again, the, the brain power in the hands to, to make it work day in, day out. Does that yep. seem kind of like an analogy that fits? That seems like a good analogy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So Distributed Cloud Firewall is this set of open source hardened Linux-based software that's distributed and it has multiple layers of capability. So it's working low in the stack at layer three with eBPF. It's working also at the transport level with Apache traffic server. And then it's using Suricata uh, and other mechanisms to get into the application. So it's a pretty complex product. What would you say from an engineering perspective is the hardest to do at scale in that arena? Because I feel like Distributed Cloud Firewall is doing something kind of innovative that we haven't really seen before in cloud, which is trying to create this big multi-cloud firewall that's intelligent at all levels of the stack mm -hmm. and offer it in a single intent-based streamlined user platform. So here we are in 2023, and you know we haven't really seen a product uh, of this shape and size really come to bear before. What do you think is the biggest challenge in terms of scaling security across the cloud? Is it the layer three stuff? because of the density of the policy, there's just so much layer three policy required, or is it the up the stack stuff that's hard to scale, or is it all hard? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's all hard in different ways. Distributed firewall, yeah, actually uh, I was thinking of, back on this as I was getting ready to talk with you. It's something that uh, like Steve Phillipin proposed in 1999. So distributed firewall has kind of been floating around for a long time. Uh, I think he was looking at it more from a perspective of your end host would be running the firewalling rules. But he was making a distinction between a host-based firewall and kind of a, a global view that you push policy rules through. Pre-cloud, I don't think we've had a particularly successful distributed firewall either. When I was at Cisco ages ago, we, we made an attempt. But we were flummoxed because we were configuring endpoint uh, Cisco firewalls and routers, and we were relying on the customer to tell us what their topology was. And the customer would frequently lie. Right. <laughs> or they wouldn't know. Right. Yeah. And so yeah. if you don't know the topology, you can't accurately enforce the policy. The other aspect of, of kind of that Cis our, our Cisco error experience was that model mismatch between the policy and what the endpoint device can do. So for a good bit of what we're doing uh, with Aviatrix's distributed cloud firewall, we control the policy and we can amend the code that's on the gateway so we can keep a, a model match there, which is nice. We also, though, do support intra-VPC uh, enforcement of the policy, which we are doing via orchestration. And so there we do get into the model mismatch because we are configuring security groups of different flavors for the different clouds. And, and some clouds have a closer match to our model than others. In terms of the gateway-based policy, you know, the layer three, four, that's, that's what we've had implemented for the longest time, a year and a half now. And there, I, I think that is in good shape. I mean, I, I feel comfortable. It is dense. But with the BPF rules that the BPF module that we have, I, I think that it's able to efficiently implement a, a very dense policy. We are pulling 
information from our smart groups from the CSP. And, that, and that's another area of kind of some scaling growth that we've been going through recently. You know, the idea is having firewall rules in terms of IP addresses is really not cloud friendly because instances in the cloud go up and down. IP addresses are very transient in a lot of cloud workloads. We're able to express our, our groups in terms of CSP tags. And so being able to pick up on changes to CSP tags and efficiently push that out is a scaling aspect that we have been addressing recently. And that is a, it was a tricky bit that's, that one of our teams has taken on. So if the idea of a distributed firewall has been around in theory since 99 and big, powerful, you know, heavyweight companies like Cisco have entered the foray, whether they were successful or not, you know, I'll, I'll leave that to, to the listener and the industry pundits, but it's not like a single vendor also has swept this market. I think that's a fair statement, right? I think mm -hmm. it's still uh, an open playing field to see, yep. you know, who's, who's really going to hit a home run here. Why haven't we seen a product like this emerge as the, the winner from a big company like Cisco? Was it what you mentioned, just they hit these problems of differences between the cloud providers and differences in the idea of truth. Didn't you kind of mention that, that it's about the state that I believe my policy is in versus the state that the policy is actually in? Yeah, that is that is another issue, yeah, definitely, that we would run into. Right. And I'm speaking from pre-cloud. My, my tenure at Cisco was in that late 90s, early 2000s. But definitely uh, for our, our product at the time, you know, we would deploy to a router, to a firewall, what we thought the state of the world was. And then the customer through their own infrastructure would fix things in, in different ways. So, so that kind of- Fix. <laughs> yes. Cross <laughs> ownership was problematic. Uh, you know, we would have some, we had some kind of hokey things to kind of pull their changes in. And you know, so, so that was definitely a problem. And then, you know, the problem of not knowing where all the enforcement points were necessarily. Definitely, we know where the enforcement points are in, in the cloud environment, or we have the opportunity to learn that, right? The uh, cloud uh, APIs let you query and find out where, where everything is. So that then must be one of the fundamental differences or approaches that we've taken that might give us a leg up, or at least a really good shot at challenging the existing set of roadblocks that have prevented a product like this from, from catching fire. So you're saying that one thing about our platform that does give us an advantage is that we have cloud native APIs that can query and learn truth mm -hmm. from yes. a cloud sense much more accurately than, than other platforms. So how does this work exactly? Maybe try to give me a freshman seminar level explanation of how our platform goes about learning what's happening in the cloud? Well, I, I was mentioned before, kind of our, one of our building blocks are these smart groups. Okay. The core smart groups are built upon CSP tags. So tags on your VMs, tags on your subnets, tags on your VPCs. So you can create a smart group that says, uh, I want all of the addresses that are associated with entities that are tag production. And I want another one that's uh, tagged with everything that's in test and another one's everything that's tagged in databases. Based on those smart groups, then you can create rules saying that, you know, traffic from prod should be able to go to the database. Traffic from test should not go to prod. So the user doesn't need to worry about keeping those addresses updated, assuming that they're doing their tagging, which most customers do some sort of tagging just to keep their own house in order. That will automatically get populated in the rules. 
Then uh, if you have an aviatrix fabric, you have gateways that are sitting in front of the VPCs, VNets that you're protecting. And we understand how traffic will route across that fabric. Then our, our controller understands the topology, understands the policy, understands the address translation that's going on, if you're doing some address translation along the way. And it will do an analysis for each of the gateways for the rule, saying, okay, which gateways are going to be possibly enforcing this rule? What are the address translations along the way? And I'll figure out the appropriate IP addresses that need to be enforced at any particular gateway along the way. And then based on that, we have a pruned set of rules for each gateway, and those get pushed out or pulled, forget which way we're doing that now, uh, to the gateways to get enforced. Okay, so it's really all about API level interpretation and abstraction. Isn't that correct? So we're abstracting a lot of the granular fussy aspects of cloud security, like an IP address. To your point, it's ephemeral. DHCP could be going on, which quite frequently in cloud does happen. IP mm -hmm. overlap could be going on, which quite frequently in cloud does happen. Thus tags avail themselves as a much better way of tracking and understanding how your policy is working. So then we're a shim, is what you're saying. And the controller is really the brain behind the shim. Is that correct? Sure. So it learns the difference between a tag and an IP address or the relationship, I should, should relationship. say, at some moment in time. And right. then we'll program the gateways themselves. The gateways mm -hmm. being brute enforcers, basically. They're the enforcement, yeah, the enforcement points. Yep. Okay, got it. What happens, let's say I have a virtual machine and it's tagged Woody's VM and DHCP rotates the IP address. Won't my policy now be out of whack because my tag's the same, but the IP is different, thus the rule set is different? How do we reconcile that moment in time where truth is right? Uh, truth, you know, truth, truth is, is changing. changing? Yes. Yes. So on the controller, we have a service that is watching for CSP changes like uh, tag changes. So it will detect that. It will update the policy. Uh, the controller will recognize that and will push new rules to the appropriate gateway. So then this system being tag-based does have some pretty cool advantages insofar as through smart groups, I could create lists of tags and then the IP addresses and even the location from VNet to VNet or VP to VPC or from one edge site to another of that asset can shift or change. But my policy is kind of immutable on top of That's that correct. change. Yep. Okay. Yep. So the intent of the policy, assuming that it's not really changing, you still want to allow traffic from prod to test. If prod moves around, the implementation of the policy should adapt. How do we handle that difference between the limits of different cloud service providers in terms of both the amount of security they can stuff into one particular tenant or, or account or rule set, and also the nuances and the different behaviors between them? So I'm, I would assume that a security group in AWS has different capabilities than say a security group in GCP or, or Azure right. stuff, right? So that might be another challenge that has kept a product like this from really catching fire in the marketplace. So what are we doing to make a difference there? Yeah, so that is a tricky thing. Yeah, the orchestration of security groups. So yeah, like I said, we have kind of two layers. We have our, our inter-VPC, which is gateway-based, right. which is because it is gateway-based is consistent across what we can do is consistent across the clouds. The other is intra-VPC. Intra and to do that right now, we are orchestrating whatever the security group mechanism is for the particular cloud. And as I noted earlier, the models are different. 
We have a mapping that maps into AWS and into Azure. There are some edge cases, and, and to your point, there are hard limits on how many rules one can enforce in, in the various clouds. Specifically, AWS hits us hardest because they have a only allow, right? Everything is denied by default and you add rules to allow. Our model is a rule-based model. You can have intermixes of allows and denies. So you can translate something that's intermixed allows and denies into something that is only allows. But when you do that, you end up splitting your networks. Uh, so if you have like a small hole and a big allow, you can kind of split that around, but you're going to expand the number of rules. So they all have rule limits, but if you're going to go expand rules, then you're going to hit those limits even sooner. The team that's been working on that, they have dug through all the edge cases. They've done an enormous amount of work, but we, we do hit those edges. And at a certain point, you have to say, you know, sorry, our policy is not expressible. Maybe consider reworking things so that you're more, you're not doing an exception-based policy. Uh, ultimately, you have to give up on that. Now, there are other tools that are doing similar kinds of orchestration. So uh, I think VMware had a tool to do that, had has a tool to do that, orchestration of security groups. And I think Cisco does as well, that does the orchestration. But uh, so we do what we can to present a unified view, but sometimes the physical reality of the enforcement points will limit what we can express. All right. It's speaking from the viewpoint of the customer. People understand that in any multi-cloud platform, of which really there are very few that have tackled or trying to tackle the mighty task of doing uniform security across multiple clouds, there will always be differences between the clouds. And that by and large, if you get it right, first of all, the vast majority of the time, this is acceptable. And then secondly, if you hit a failure state that you fail intelligently and in a protective way, that this is, this is going to be the best possible outcome, that no multi-cloud system is ever going to reconcile some of these differences between the clouds in a perfect, pristine way. Because the CSPs are who they are and their platforms are naturally different and in some cases necessarily different because it's that difference that drives competitive outcomes and drives customer choice and Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, differentiation in the market, which ultimately we want, right? If all the products are the same, then <laughs> from a consumer perspective, we're all just consuming the same thing. Uh, and that's, that's not good. So there's a kind of perfect state of imperfection, I think, that you can reach with this kind of a platform. And I think VCF, in my opinion, does a, a damn fine job of that. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, it's a voyage, right? I've been with Aviatrix two years. Most of this time has been spent working on DCF. I think we're making great progress. Uh, I'm really happy with where we are right now, but we never ask an engineer if they're satisfied because there's always more to do, right? <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Along that line, what would you like to see DCF take on or transform or evolve into down the road? And, you know, you don't have to give away company secrets here, but... Uh, from a scientific research engineer perspective, what are some use cases that you think DCF is going to be really good at addressing that you're excited to to work into the platform, you know, at a later date? Yeah. Well, so like in the, in the case of Suricata, our intrusion detection, moving towards intrusion protection, I think there's a lot we can do there. Like we're, we're using a fair, you know, we're using Suricata, using signature based rules. 
it would be really cool if we could do something that was not truly signature-based, right? If we could do some analytics, some learning auto-detection to understand and quarantine odd behavior uh, to do something that maybe based on a greater set of our customers' environments, find some recurring like early botnet behaviors and bring that back into the fold. Intrusion detection protection is, always has this huge, huge area that one could, could push on. We also have some folks that are looking at uh, service mesh. So pushing out from, you know, we're, we're enforcing at, at our fabric edge and we're enforcing within the customer or with the CSP's environment. If we can push all the way into the end and take advantage of application frameworks and be able to share policy with them, then that, you know, the closer you can get security enforcement to the endpoints, the better off you are, possibly with multiple levels of security as you're going in. So I think that's another area that uh, some folks uh, in here in Aviatrix are looking at and are involved in that community. And I think that's a place that we can bring some, some power to. Taking DCF off the table for a moment and just speaking kind of about the state of security and distributed security in general, do you see AIML having a near-term impact on these security systems or are we just not at a right spot with, with AI and ML yet? I mean, I know it's a huge buzz topic and, you know, we've had some guests talk about AI and ML on the show before from <laughs> different angles, but I'm specifically interested on your take as a real practitioner and engineer of secure systems. In, in the cloud. Do you think it's going to be transformative? Will we see some changes in the way we approach security in the next couple of years where we do want AI and ML to start learning and making recommendations? Or is that still further out because frankly, AI and ML, while there's a lot of marketing hype on it, needs to grow up a little bit before we're ready to have it secure our crown jewels, so to speak. Yeah. Well, it depends on what you mean by AI and ML. I mean, ML machine learning has been around for a while. Okay. And there has been some really good research papers in terms of like doing analysis on encrypted traffic to try to identify which bits of encrypted traffic are malicious or unusual or possibly botnets. Cisco did a lot of early work there and, and have had a, they have a product in this area. So I think in that space, there is work that, I, I feel that we're going to be able to bring into into our environment, into production. There are the large language models and the chat GPT and the generative AI. That's what's been getting all the buzz recently. So I assume that's kind of what you're kind of angling at. Yeah. And for the space that I work in, I, I don't see that as being super helpful. I think for things that are language oriented, it, it is super helpful. And maybe for some log analysis or customer analysis, that could be super useful. In terms of analyzing NetFlow data, I, I don't see that straight away. But you know, I think there's a lot of other work in that area that I think will come to fruition pretty quickly. I think ultimately you are correct. I did a podcast with Zach Hughes a couple of months ago, and we discussed what was happening right now in the marketplace with this newer emergence of AI as kind of a marketing consumer force versus machine learning in the context of, of enterprise, which to your point has been around a really long time. He brought up the important point that what we're seeing now is just kind of a commodification of AI and a personification of it in a way that lends itself to help with productivity, to make your work stream more simple, almost kind of like, you know, an Alexa or a Cortana 
in your workspace that you query and get useful information out of in, a, in, in the productive sphere. And so I don't immediately see that kind of a persona making a huge impact in security. I mean, we don't really talk to Alexa about whether our firewall rules are correct or not. <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah, I, I think the point is well taken. But your earlier point was that there is an advantage for machine learning and that work is actually ongoing. Oh, and yeah. that yeah. it's uh, maybe something that we'll see more of in the short term, where we're looking through a lot of alarms and security events and machine learning is being able to sift through and say, these are really important. These mm -hmm. are kind of medium important, and this is just noise. So it could help right. that kind of alarm fatigue and that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Being yeah. able to cross-reference multiple bits of data. Yeah. So, that, you know, one of the, the issues historically with intrusion detection systems is there are so many alerts, which for the vast majority of Folks, most of them don't make any sense, right? Yeah. Don't make any difference, right? Yeah. There's one that we have running in our test environment that just alar alarms you that you're running curl, which in our test environment, we always run curl, right? right. <laughs> so, that one doesn't make sense for us. Uh, but if you could cross-correlate that maybe with some NetLoopFlow data, right? There's some unusual behavior here with this IP address. And, oh, hey, there's a bunch of alert alerts, too. Those might be more important. I think that kind of machine learning, AI, and that's the other thing too, AI is what AI is has changed, right? When I was in grad school, AI was expert systems, right? And you know, that's not AI anymore. And once the problem gets kind of solved, then it's not really AI, then moves on to the next thing. Well, Susan, this has been awesome. Thank you for your time. As always, I've learned a tremendous amount. Look forward to speaking with you again, tracking the progress of, of DCF, just learning what you're up to. So okay. it's, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me on. You're welcome.